Welcome back to another episode of Stimulate Your Mind, proudly presented to you by LOF Productions. On danger, whether it is real or actually imagined. So the cognitive feelings of dread that we get sometimes in anticipation of something bad that's going to happen and the physical sensation and the jitteriness and the heart racing, all of that, all of this is meant to capture our attention and stimulate us to make the necessary changes that we need to protect ourselves or others. So having little bouts of anxiety here and there, it's natural and it's even productive, you could say, because... This is, again, the natural human response that we have for the flight or fight response, but it also helps us to deal and plan for the future. So anxiety, according to this type of theory, you could say, is that constant worrying and having physical as well as mental responses to a perceived danger in the form of stress. But then with anxiety, and we're going to get into the details, inshallah, to see how deep it can go in terms of how it impacts us. I just want to make a distinction between fear and anxiety because sometimes people use the words interchangeably, but there is an actual difference. So anxiety is about something that we are not aware of that's going to happen in the future that we can't see. Fear is this similar type of response, but towards something that we can see, that we are aware of. So, for example, when you see a spider, a lot of people could have that instant fear of the spider, or they could be thinking about the spider. So, hence, you will have that anxiety towards thinking about the spider. So, you see the difference between the two? So, essentially, it's the fear of the unknown. That's an excellent way of putting it. And what what are the some yeah. what are some causes of anxiety or of not knowing? So there's a different different variety of causes to anxiety, right? So we know it is the persistent, the persuasive, or the outsized anxiety that can disrupt our daily life. So whether it's a school or work or friends, all of this can show that it's anxiety. Here in North America, we see that one third of adults, they have this out of control anxiety that at some point in their life, and it's accompanied sometimes by depression. We'll get into that a little bit further, but we can see that biology contributes to the vulnerability of anxiety, especially childhood experiences, early trauma, parenting practices, such as overprotection. For parents out there who are constantly trying to protect their children, that could impact the cause later on. We can see that the real cause of anxiety, honestly, is just being human with the capacity to imagine a future and thinking about that, right? It's that uncertainty. And of course, especially with what's happening in the world these days with the pandemic, there's so much uncertainty happening, right? Anxiety is unique in that it can be triggered by events in the real world. So for example, you have an upcoming exam. There's a relationship conflict, there's a doctor's appointment, or the cost of the rent has increased, right? All of these can generate imagined thoughts or sorry, imagined threats or real threats, right? Not knowing what to say or what to do, let's say, when the boss calls you in for a meeting. I'm sure we've all experienced that type of anxiety, right? So it could be events. But it also could be related to biology. And we've spoken about that with depression in terms of what are some of the causes. It's very similar to anxiety. It could be related to genetics. It could be related to early childhood trauma. It could be related to trauma later on in life. So people could have anxiety in relation in 
regards to, let's say, abusive relationships, once you've left that relationship, you could be triggered by a thought, a sound, a smell, or memory that could remind you of that very difficult situation. And that could trigger a lot of the responses that you could be experiencing in that moment. So there's not one real cause of it. And sometimes when it's genetic, you could, for example, for a long time in your life, not respond or not uh, have any particular symptoms or signs, but then all of a sudden you would have a panic attack out of nowhere. And you think about your life, well, everything's good. I'm not really stressed. I don't have any issues. What caused this? And it could be that, let's say, I'll give you an example, a real life example. Uh, And this is uh, my example. And my first introduction to anxiety at the time is when I was in high school. I think a lot of people can relate to this example. When I was in high school, I was in my algebra or calculus class, which can cause a lot of anxiety for people. And I recall sitting in front of the class and looking at the board while the teacher was writing things on the board in high school. And math is not one of my strengths. And so this is a, this is a class that would cause me a lot of stress to begin with, but everything seemed okay at the time, just writing things down. And all of a sudden out of nowhere, I started shaking, sweating. My breathing became very hyperventilated and I just fainted. Next thing you know, (laughs) I want a stretcher being taken to the hospital and being taken from one place to the next and not really knowing what's happening from one specialist. So I went to a neurologist, a hemoglobin specialist, finally a cardiologist, two of them, The second one picked up on the issue. So I walked in with my dad and it was, I remember Southeast Asian doctor and a Muslim name. And he, I remember his name, Dr. Khan. He looked at my dad, took one look and said, back off. You're putting too much pressure on her. And that's what's causing her this anxiety. So early on in life, I realized that, didn't realize rather, I, that was the first connection I had with a panic attack. Didn't know what it was, but then I remember my school teachers and the principal would all help me in terms of trying to lower my stress. And we've spoken a lot about mental health and stress and how it can trigger either depression or anxiety. So I now understand years later that my response to stress is anxiety. And if I don't take care of it properly, sure enough, this is what would happen. And back then, that's what happened. And so I think a lot of us can relate to that. If we don't take care of our stress properly, me personally in that situation, the stress was of school. I, I, I am afraid of math. I was fearful of it. I wanted to do well. You know, I had all these anxieties around not doing well and a lot of work. So I wasn't sleeping well either. I wasn't eating well. I recall that I would, during lunch break, I'd be in the, uh, we call it the change room studying instead of taking a break. So all of that took its toll on me early on. And like I said, a lot of us can connect with this type of ideas that things could be fine, but all of a sudden out of nowhere, you have a panic attack and it's your body's signal of telling you, hey, you need to listen to this. Otherwise, this is what's going to happen to you. Definitely. And you mentioned that sometimes um, the symptoms won't show themselves or the symptoms aren't that obvious. Um, So what are some of the symptoms of anxiety and how is anxiety diagnosed? So we need to understand that anxiety shows itself not just with these endless loops of worries that we have, you know, and the the heart pounding and constant thoughts in our head or jump, you know, jumping or trembling or sometimes shortness of breath. These symptoms of anxiety, they can be misleading. Sometimes they could be often misinterpreted signs of a heart attack or this impending doom, right, of a cardiac failure. Uh, But then 
sometimes they could also lead you to a whole bunch of different medical misdiagnosis, right? So these physical symptoms, they could be assumed to be a result of physical causes. And so sometimes it's really important to be aware of that. But usually the anxiety shows itself in both the mind and the body, right? So we can take a look at specific ones. So your heart beats faster. We can see that. So your pulse becomes increased, your blood pressure, your breathing accelerates. You may feel shortness of breath and other symptoms could include dizziness, muscle tension, trembling, shaking, dry mouth, sweating, stomach ache, et cetera. It could, these are the common ones. It could be different for different people. And I hope as we're speaking and saying these things that you're not experiencing them or yeah, feeling that. It's almost like when you start speaking about it, you start saying, oh, my God, my heart rate is going up. Oh, my blood pressure and so on and so forth. So what happens here is in the brain's amygdala, this signals the hypothalamus, which is the central command of the brain, which then broadcasts the signal through the autonomic nervous system. And it sets off all of these hormones, including adrenaline. And then this is what stimulates all of these symptoms that we just described with the heart rate and the pulse rate. So when you start understanding how our brains and our body work together, the mind and body, this also gives you a chance to be proactive in managing these symptoms ahead of time, rather than freaking out like I did in that example. I'm sure a lot of us have experienced that in terms of what is going on. And so when you have that thought of what's going on, you become even more fearful, more anxious, and then it could make this almost like an endless cycle which is what happens in panic attacks definitely um and a lot of people uh mentioned oh this gives me anxiety or that's making me anxious or i feel anxious what does that anxious feeling actually entail so again it's the body's response to a perceived threat right the flight or flight response and that feeling is trying to get your body to take action when we don't listen to the signals that our body sends us then it will make things worse right so it's really important to recognize your own stress response and we spoke quite a bit about that i believe in our first session in terms of understanding how your body responds to responses to stress around you so you know how to be proactive in terms of reversing some of these right so any of us can really experience these debilitating bouts of anxiety but some of us seem to be more inclined to that and that's again because of genes or temperament or perhaps of results of early experiences right and it could be the also in terms of our brains the over or under activity in some of the areas in our brains right they can interpret neutral situations as threatening or then or then you overreact to, to any threatening situation we know that stress also is a major contributor to that anxiety right so stress and anxiety they can overlap but then stress itself can set off anxiety and be a response to it Right. So that's that's what could be happening there in terms of that anxious feeling, what it could entail, what could it mean? And so it's really important, again, and I repeat that we learn how we respond to stress so that we can be proactive before it gets to the point of anxiety. Now, there's there's five major anxiety disorders, so generalized anxiety disorder, obsessive compulsive disorder, panic disorder, PTSD and social anxiety. Are these right. different types of anxieties linked to each other? Or are there, are there ways in which they differ? 
they are similar and they can differ, of course. So when we look at GAD, generalized anxiety disorder, this is just describing overall anxiety that a person could experience, could be, you know, that constant word, just the typical symptoms of anxiety. So for general, and that's, that's one of the most common disorders that I see as a clinician with the young people that I work with at the university. Very common. OCD is not as common, let's say, as the generalized anxiety, but it happens. And so with obsessive compulsive disorder, this is more of a psychiatric issue where it needs to be treated potentially with medication and different types of treatments and psychiatric, because being a psychiatrist, more of a specialist, right? So obsessive compulsive disorders could be, and the most common one that we hear is people perhaps talking about, did I lock the door or constantly washing their hands? And then when we look at it from the Muslim population, this is related to Najasa, yeah. right? Uh, purification. We hear that we see, and I hear this commonly with, with Muslims who do have OCD, constantly making sure that the hara and their tables where they cook the washrooms of course and most commonly the wudu mm -hmm. right they they there's a lot of wahwas in terms of worry in terms of did i do my wudu properly did i even do it no you know what i'm gonna go do it again am i tahir okay i need to shower and do ghusl etc etc so a lot of that can be seen in ocd from the muslim population and uh, i don't see it as often with the student population, except for people who have, let's say, excessive thoughts around perfectionism, right, in terms of how they have to do well in their studies, and they will not hand in, let's say, an assignment, unless it reaches that level of perfection that they want, even though they will hand it in late and lose marks for it. Mm. So, Sometimes you see it around there. When it comes to panic disorder, that's also common. And that would be a result, let's say, of the excessive anxiety that people experience with generalized anxiety disorder. And so that could be a result of that. It could be on its own. Let's say they're fine. Like the example I gave you when I was back in high school, that panic disorder is the constant response of having the panic attacks. And those are very unpleasant having experienced them myself. And I'm sure a lot of our listeners have either seen it or experienced it themselves. It can be quite debilitating having those panic attacks. And it doesn't mean that there's anything wrong with you. It just means that this is how your body's responding to that stress and you need to look at how to manage it properly, right? And so the panic attack is that what we described, and I don't want to describe it too passionately as it might perhaps induce or trigger our listeners, but it's a lot of what we described earlier, but especially with the hyperventilation and struggling with the breathing and some people could faint or what's interesting. And I've, I remember myself when I used to have them back in the day and I, I hear it often when people describe it, the tingling mm. in the body and uh, feeling very out of it, so to speak, once you kind of wake up from that or what it's subsided. And a lot of times I will tell my clients and students, don't fight it. When you fight it with your thought and your body, you're putting up a really hard resistance and it makes the response even more. Whereas if you open up yourself to just let it wash through your body and your mind, your that resistance then can help you, rather the lack of resistance can help you deal with it better and it won't feel as intensely. And afterwards, when you that that very uncomfortable it's it's almost as though you're jet lagged or you have come out of a very short sleep when you needed good proper sleep that feeling right you just feel so disoriented and that's how people would describe that and 
that's a normal response to panic disorders, right? Now, when we take a look at PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, this is common with people who've had traumatic events in their lives, whether it was a violent abusive relationship or war or early childhood trauma, including sexual trauma, not just childhood, but anybody who's experienced physical or sexual trauma and abuse. The PTSD, essentially what it is, is the symptoms that we describe that will happen as a result of specifically these types of incidences that happened in a person's life. And especially, let's say, with dreams or people who I, I, I'll give a vivid example of a student um, a few years ago who was a sexual survivor, sexual trauma survivor, uh, unfortunately, by the military. And I recall on campus during the summers, we have the military training on campus. And I recall as we were having our session, the training came by in the window and she responded to that. She had an anxiety response from the post-traumatic stress that she experienced from this incident that took place a long time ago in her life, but she hadn't dealt with it or hadn't gotten the treatment for it, but you could see her visibly responding to the trauma from seeing military personnel. So the connection of the mind and the body is quite strong when it comes to PTSD. Alhamdulillah, I can say that after years of therapy with that client, she's in a much, alhamdulillah, better place and she succeeded, she's succeeding in her life, alhamdulillah. But hear. you can see how, yeah, alhamdulillah, you can see that these incidences are not isolated and especially in the world that we're living in now, the trauma that we see all around, whether it's the violence or the wars or the killing. And, you know, let's take a moment and also acknowledge the, um, the murder that took place to our Hazara brothers. Yeah. Exactly. Where I could only imagine the families and those who witnessed that trauma, what that could cause them. God bless them. And may they rest in peace. And inshallah, those who committed this will be punished. These types of incidences where people, let's say, have experienced these types of violent experiences in their lives, when they see something like this on social media or in the news, that can trigger them. And I, in fact, I had somebody reach out to me and say, this reminded me of how violently my father was murdered because of him being um, a minority Muslim in a predominantly et cetera, et cetera, society. Mm -hmm. So this is how PTSD can come about to people who have experienced a trauma, such as this, these two examples that I gave. And I often see this also in our older generation of parents where they could experience PTSD, but not necessarily show the typical symptoms of anxiety that we've described. What I have seen and heard from families who, let's say, have had families who lived through the wars in Lebanon or Iraq, what, what I, I hear typically is that these parents or these elderly family members would withdraw or they don't connect or they don't speak or when they see or hear something, they just pull back. And I'd say that has to do a lot with the, the misconceptions and attitudes that our elderly people in our community have when it comes to mental health, because that's quite different for us now than it was for them, right? They don't talk about these things. So there's a lot of withdrawal. And so perhaps the younger family members don't know why their grandparents and the elderly are responding this way. So these are things that I've noted and for people to, to be aware of. Finally, we have social anxiety, and this is an interesting one, and it's also one of the most common ones I see with the student population, 
where it's with the responses of fear and anxiety that we could exhibit in terms of what people think of us and how we interact with people and what others are, are going to say about us in terms of our behavior, our looks, our accomplishments, are we good enough? And I see so much fear around young people in terms of trying to make connections, whether it's through friendships or looking for a spouse or a partner. And it becomes so hard for them to try and connect because of this debilitating social anxiety that they could be experiencing. Right. And it's so common. It's so heartbreakingly common with young people. And it's also, I would say, the root of that, which I forgot to mention earlier, is connected to low self-esteem when it comes to these type of social issues. And I see that so much with young people. So a lot of our anxieties are rooted in our lack of self-esteem, right? We give prevalence to what people think about us rather than what we think about ourselves. We put our worst externally out there based on what others think rather than internally. So for example, if we take a look at our grades, for example, when we're younger, our parents were always saying, mashallah, you're such a good boy or girl you've done, because you've done so well, right? Yeah. And so your worth is built. You see how right away your worth as a child is built on how well you can do in school or how well you were dressed with your peers or the toys or how you fit into cliques and the lingo, the language that you use, right? If these are not cool or in the same as everybody else, you know you're going to be in trouble, but you know also not just in trouble with being accepted, but how it's connected to your worth. So that constant worrying about what others are thinking about you can lead to this type of social anxiety as well. And I will say this, and I always say this, and I'll repeat it again, your worth is completely independent of these external factors. And this is one of my favorite tenets that I've learned from this book here. I'll scrub it. Hopefully my whole bookcase won't fall down here. <laughs> so it's this book here, which is a wonderful resource that I recommend for anybody who wants to work on self-esteem, but also the root for anxiety, right? The Self-Esteem Workbook by Dr. Let's see here. Dr. Glenn. Glenn. Chiraldi. Chiraldi. Yeah. Yes. This is a book that's so beat up now because I've been using this for such a long time. And it's excellent when it takes a look at what is the root causes of self-esteem issues. Anxiety and depression are the top two. And so I work very closely with my patients when we take a look at how can we reverse the impact of social anxiety or just generalized anxiety or working with panic disorder is let's take a look at the core the core roots here and building up our sense of self, love, growth. So that way self-esteem can be balanced. And I'll show you a quick diagram, which I think is very comprehensive when taking a look at how we can build our core worth to work with anxiety is this diagram right here. Foundations of self-esteem. So we want to take a look at our worth, building our worth, number one. Number two, love. And love can be from ourself, our family, not necessarily romantic love here, right? This is love from within ourselves, God, spiritually, friends, family. And then number three, this is where growth can occur. And when you have those solid foundations right there, then you can see that self-esteem can be in a somewhat healthy balance. When you have that healthy balance of your self-esteem like that, absolutely, then we can work with 
dealing with those negative thoughts that are just constantly ruminating in our heads. Definitely. So I think, uh, I think we're quite thorough in terms of looking yeah. at these different types and understanding that, yes, they are different. A lot of them have different roots and causes, right? And they exhibit themselves specifically in terms of the different triggers. And that's why they are specifically uh, labeled as such. 100%. Now, you mentioned earlier that some of the symptoms of anxiety can be linked with depression or they can be genetically inherited. What other links are there between anxiety and depression? So we need to understand how it works neurologically, right? From the biological level here. And subhanAllah, we'll see that many of the symptoms of anxiety can be the same as depression. And that's because it involves the same brain pathways, Right. And that's why sometimes it's linked and that's how it can be linked. Now we can also link it this way. So I'll give you an example. So somebody who and we can connect it, let's say, in the recent uh, the last few years where, let's say, a lot of women, Muslim women with hijab have experienced Islamophobia. Right. And so because the people and we saw this here in North America, that a lot of women started to be afraid of going to the subway or using the trains. And especially in the city of Toronto, where we have a big subway underground system, because there are a lot of women were being pushed uh, close to the trains. Um, they were physically beaten, hijab pulled off. And so this created anxiety around women being publicly out there with their hijab in such spaces. So when you take this example, then what's going to happen, let's say to this woman, perhaps she will not go outside, perhaps she will not use the public train system and isolate herself. So when we're looking at, excuse me, isolation and staying away from going to wherever, although now we're in a lockdown, so we're all stuck at home anyways. Yeah. But back then, I recall this was an issue where there was an increase in depression because of the anxiety related to Islamophobia or similar events where these women would stay home. They would not go outside or interact within society, Canadian society, or just Western society, because they were afraid of being attacked. This led to depression because of isolation. We've spoken quite in depth when we looked at depression and the causes, and one of which was being ridiculed, abused, bullied, traumatized, isolated, essentially. Mm. So that's how you can see the link is there from, let's say, a situational or societal point of view. But again, it's because these symptoms involve the same brain pathways, and hence they're linked that way. A lot of people experience anxiety and don't really know how to deal with it. And you mentioned before, it's about riding the wave when it, when it comes along. Yeah. Can it, can it be prevented? So I, I wouldn't say, can it, see, that's a tricky question because it comes back to our nervous system and our autonomic system, how it responds to a perceived threat. We still need for our body to show these signs and symptoms, but perhaps managing those symptoms better. Right. When there's a fear of a danger or a perceived threat in front of you, you absolutely need your body to respond. You want your heart rate to go up. You want your muscles to tense in the sense of being ready to take action, whether if you're being physically attacked to defend yourself. Right. You want your body to respond this way. Otherwise, then it becomes an issue. Right. Definitely. But it, but this is, let's say, the normal common way of responding when it comes to anxiety. Of course, you don't want to be constantly responding to stress this way. That would be abnormal to be in a constant state of heightened arousal like that to respond that way. 
is very disorienting as we were describing before. So there are ways if you do experience this type, these types of anxieties, there's definitely ways of managing them, right? Because like we said, we do want our body to respond to stress, but not constantly in that heightened level of arousal. So it can be prevented that way once you learn how your body works. And this is where, as a therapist, I will say, you definitely need to seek a therapist to be able to work on these strategies, right? So one of the most common forms of addressing or dealing with anxiety disorders is through psychotherapy, combination of medication with lifestyle changes. Pretty common sense, right? Yeah. Just as though you go to a doctor, if you're dealing with some kind of, let's, we always use the example of diabetes or cardiovascular diseases, right? You definitely need medication. You need monitoring with the doctor and you need lifestyle changes. So same thing with anxiety. One of the most common forms of treatment that we have is CBT, which I'm sure a lot of you have heard, cognitive behavioral therapy. And this is tailored to the individual specific anxieties. Now, believe it or not, this book here that we mentioned already has some fabulous cognitive behavioral therapy strategies that I use when dealing with anxiety, one of which is my favorites, which I'll go through here. And it's this one here. And it's called, as you can see here, recognizing and replacing self-defeating thoughts. This is one of the most basic strategies that we use in cognitive behavioral therapy when it comes to being able to recognize, which is the first thing I said, recognize how your body and your mind responds and learning how to replace that self-defeating. So how about we go through this? Ali, do you mind? um, Let's do it. Let's go through it. Let's pretend we're in an actual therapy session right now, and then I'll get into the other details because I think this is very practical. It's easy to do. And inshallah, those who are interested, they can reach out and I'll be more than happy to email them this resource so that you can use it. So essentially, when we're taking a look at recognizing and replacing self-defeating thoughts, there are around 13 distortions. And I'll go through them quickly before Ali, you and I are actually going to go through it. Okay. So assumptions. Great. I love your positive attitude. So assumptions should have, could have, would have, right? The fairy tale, fantasy, all or nothing thinking, overgeneralizing, labeling, dwelling on the negative. Are these sounding uh, familiar? (laughs) Rejecting the positive, unfavorable comparisons, catastrophizing, personalizing, blaming, making feelings facts. So these are common uh, distortions that we tend to all have at some point or another when we look at people, when we're looking at social media, whether at work or at home, these thoughts come to our mind. It becomes an issue when it's consistently persistent. When it's like we said about mental health illnesses is when it's disrupting your life, right? So when these thoughts have invaded your daily interactions, that's when we need to kind of work on them. So, with this tool called the daily thought record, and it looks something like this. Mm. So the daily thought record, and it has a chart. And this is where Ali, you and I are going to go through this right now. So essentially what we want to do is describing, we want to describe the event. Okay. So Ali, can you think of something and it doesn't have to be real because we're just doing a a role play here. Can you describe an event that made you feel bad or unpleasant? Let's say an argument with a friend. Absolutely. Can you describe the emotions you felt? So the next part of the chart is the impact of the event. So describe the emotions you felt. So let's, let's go with anger. 
anger. Perhaps you were irritated or frustrated. Frustrated, yeah. Yes. Okay. So these are good to start with. And the next part of the chart takes a look at, looks at the intensity. So rating the intensity of these emotions, one to 10, how angry were you or how frustrated from one to 10 were you? Let's go eight to 10 for anger and eight to 10 for frustration. Fair enough. The next part here is where we get into the analysis of our thoughts, right? Obviously, when you're in the midst of a situation where there's a high anxiety, you're not going to go step by step. This of is something course. that you want to do when you are calmer. That way you can process your thoughts because once the amygdala and the hippocampus, uh, the I the hippocampus yet, the yeah. part of the brain of the control center, once that's stimulated, you can't at that moment think clearly you need to be able to bring your heart rate down bring the you know cool yourself down so that way you can think clearly so we definitely want to do this when you are calmer so the next part takes a look at these initial responses so ali can you please describe the automatic thoughts or negative self-talk that you that came across your mind when you were thinking of your anger and your frustration in this situation what was the negative self-thought that came to your head the automatic thoughts i should have dealt with this better okay should have dealt with this better why does this always happen why does this always happen okay so let's let's go with those two how how believable is each from one to ten would you say how much do you believe this out of ten that oh you could have handled it you should have done better or mm. the other thought that you presented should have handled it nine out of ten Okay. What was the other one I said? Why does this always happen? Why does this happen? Yeah. Two out of 10. Two out of 10. So the next part is the thought fallacy. What we want to do here is go back to those 13 distortions and look at which one it is and label these thoughts. So the first one is pretty evident. The yeah. should have, could have, would have, right? And the second one, what do you think that one is? Like, why does this always happen? What do you think that could have been? If any of these stand out, blaming maybe? Blaming. Personalizing. Yeah. Yeah. Overgeneralizing, perhaps, mm. assuming. assuming. So there's a few there. Yeah, there's a few that can be so, ticked off there. Exactly. So that's what we want to do. We want to take a look at which distortion is it. And then finally, we'll take a look at the reasonable responses. So this is where we want to talk back to that negative thought. This is where we want to change the distortion to a more reasonable thought and also rate, uh, rate that. So that first one. I should have done better. How could you reframe that? How could you make that a more reasonable thought? Because when you say I should have, could have, would have, that's a lot of negative energy putting yeah. on yourself, wouldn't you think? So how could you reframe that into a more reasonable thought without putting so much negative pressure on yourself? Like maybe Will learning, learning from the situation for the next, for the next time? Absolutely. That's a really good one, right? So we replace it with, instead of saying... I should have, all right? We want to say something like, I, you know, I want to do that because it's to my advantage, you know, not because somebody's telling me that I should or my mind is telling me that I should. So see how you reframe it in a more positive way rather than those really heavy negative thoughts. The other one was, why does this always happen? Could we maybe take that a, a step further so we can play with it better? Why does this always happen to me? Mm. All right. So this is where we're blaming. So how, which, which one would you, like, how, how would you reframe that with a more reasonable thought? Why does this always happen to me? It really hasn't happened that much. Okay, good. So rather than catastrophizing it, you're bringing it down. And you're saying, oh, it really hasn't happened that much. It just happened in, the, in that moment, right? How much would you rate them in terms of how much you believe 
these more reasonable thoughts. Pretty, pretty high on the scale. So you notice it's pretty high. Now let's go back to those other thoughts. Now that you've gone through this process of having these reasonable thoughts, you've probably reduced Reduce, and brought yeah. down your anxiety. How much do you believe those negative thoughts now out of 10? Yeah, they're, they're below the threes now. Alhamdulillah. So you see already that that thought process changed that. Then we go back to the very end, the final step, which is the intensity. And now we can re-rate the impact of the anger and the frustration. They were pretty high. They were eight to uh, nine to 10 at first. Yeah. Where are they now? How, how much would you rate them now? So they, they would have dropped 100%. So Alhamdulillah. Fours, fives. Because basically so you're, you're training yourself to calm yourself. You're like, training yourself to calm yourself by working with your neural pathways to bring down those heightened arousal responses, which can be very negative, right? That release of that constant adrenaline in your body, which is what causes that anxiety, is that we want to reverse the impact of that by lowering our heart rate, getting breathing back to normal, getting oxygen where it needs to go, and using our brain once we've been yeah, able to so come logically down looking in at this the situation. Ascentum. So this is a very powerful tool that you can use anytime. And I actually recommend the clients that I work with when we look at this specific strategy is to work on it on a week or two by writing things down because it is done in yeah, a, in a in format a table, yeah. where, yeah, that you can use. And I'd be more than happy to share that with you. And even I have the link um, for the book that you can download um, and even buy it, of course, uh, not just download it for free, but you can find it online as well if you're interested, where you can use this strategy step-by-step by first, of course, writing it down a few times. You notice by the end of the week or two, you don't need to write it out anymore. You're automatically do doing it in, it in your, your head. head. Yep. Yeah, but we need that practice a few times to be able to recognize the fallacies and being able to work through it in our head to go through that step process of this is what I'm recognizing. This is how, how anxious or this is how upset I feel. No, this is the distortion. No, this is a better way of reframing it. A short, another strategy very quickly that is... Similar to this, and this is why I really enjoy this book to help with anxiety and depression, is because it's a step-by-step -step build up. So we did this kind of like the long division. Yeah. Remember long division? Yeah. And then we learned that little uh, one-stepper later on. We're like, well, why don't you just teach us that instead of going through the misery of the long division? So the short division trick to this one is called nevertheless, uh, the nevertheless. And the, so essentially with nevertheless, and I'll quickly show you, which is the next chapter here, essentially what this concept is this, is that what you want to write down is the fallacy. So even though I lost my temper with my friend, right, Ali? Yeah. <laughs> nevertheless, then you write down here in this section right there, mm. the value something of value. Remember we spoke, we spoke about values earlier, something valuable of worth to yourself. And that's what you would write here. So even though I lost my temper, even though I became upset, I'm still a valuable person. I'm still a person of worth. I'm still a good human being. So you see right away, we acknowledge this is what we want to do when it comes to anxiety. You want to acknowledge the challenge, the difficulty, but then you want to replace it with something that's more reasonable. Yep. Yes. So, alhamdulillah. So, we just did a full session right now <laughs> on how we're using CBT because this is a great cognitive behavioral strategy that you can apply across the board to a variety of different mental health challenges. And we just saw how we worked with it with this anxious moment that you experienced with your friend, right? Mm -hmm. So, this is CBT. 
This is one of the most effective strategies and options that we have where you are challenging your distorted thought patterns to create, to reduce that distress, right? There's also exposure therapy. So the, the, what happens here, the clients or the patients, they are safely, safely, keyword here, mm-hmm. and gradually exposed to their fears so they no longer avoid them. So it's an essential part of what most behavioral treatments, so behavioral therapy, there's different types of therapies, as you know, or different types of psychology. So this is what we use in behavioral therapy for anxiety, and it works. We also see that medication is often used to help patients control some of the symptoms so that they can focus on the therapy. And with the clients that I see, I highly encourage medication if the natural stuff that we try to work on doesn't work. Right. And so what that means, natural, what does that mean? So that means, of course, looking at lifestyle changes. That's an integral role and very important in terms of the long term management of anxiety. Right. So exercising, because what happens in exercise, what we've spoken about, gets rid of the stress hormones that have been built up. Right. The adrenaline, deep breathing. This is great. A lot of people just completely overlook that. But there is so much science behind that slow, deep breathing where you breathe it in through your nose, hold in the oxygen, and then release out through your breath. Maybe what we can do, Ali, one time is a meditation. How do you feel about that? We should do a session on meditation. Let's do a meditation session and we can really get into this and then our audiences can also practice it, inshallah. And so this is something I absolutely believe in. I've seen the impact of it with my own clients and patients and I, myself, somebody who is experiencing anxiety, um, I didn't actually have a disorder, but I definitely had the symptoms of it because stress worked on, right? So meditation, all of these target the different aspects of the disorder. When we take a look at natural approaches to anxiety, of course, it requires the active treatment, okay? And what that means is that you want to be able to control these anxiety with lifestyle and behavior changes, right? So calming through, like we said, calming the mind through meditation. We know this is an Eastern practice that is something that Western cultures are really incorporating and making it very popular. We know that regular running, walking, and I know with the pandemic, it's been very challenging. It doesn't mean we can't tune into our favorite YouTube um, exercise gurus to help us. I'm so into that right now. I wasn't in the first lockdown, but I must say having the lockdown lifted and hitting the gyms again, getting back into physical uh, fitness and just feeling healthy and tone and fit and all of a sudden lockdown again for us. No way I'm going back to pre-pandemic or pre-lockdown. So I'm one of those people who said, no, you know what? I'm going to continue because I really like the way that I was feeling and how I was being fit again. I'm going to continue with that because you get so anxious. Then it's this ugly cycle of self-hate and then worry and then, you know, weight gain and not feeling good and healthy. So it's really important to, to manage that, right? So you can definitely do that. And when we look at walking or running, what it does, it releases the muscle tension that creates so much of distress in our body. Studies have also shown that it helps changes in the brain. And the idea here is the, one of the most effective measures, like we said, is the deep breathing. Why? It's also called, by the way, the, the diaphragmic because you're using the diaphragm in terms of opening and closing, right? This has a direct effect on the nervous system, including the state of calm and also managing curbing those feelings of threat. Breathing slows down the heart rate, gets oxygen where it needs to go, 
and it gets rid of that tingly, anxious feeling that we get sometimes. SubhanAllah, just breathing can do that. Yeah. But of course, inshallah, uh, we'll do a session on meditation and breathing and mindfulness because these are amazing practices that can help with anxiety, mindfulness as well. And mindfulness is something that I mentioned without using the word mindfulness earlier, which is the observing how the anxiety or panic attack washes through you. When you observe it rather than judge yourself and try to fight it, that mindfulness practice can really, really be helpful in not getting caught up in the waves of the anxiety. Earlier, we mentioned um, PTSD and you spoke about migrant families. Um, <clears throat> so, we find a lot of cases where first and second generation migrants um, show some symptoms of PTSD, but they're not really obvious. So, you mentioned being very reserved, very isolated. Um, other things like not communicating with their kids, not speaking about the past, um, yes. being very inclined to being with people that you know are very similar to them um, and have maybe suffered the same things. Yes. So what are the long-term effects of these migrant parents or grandparents not dealing with these issues? What are the effects well, on it, them and yeah, what are the effects on their yeah. children? Well, when we take a look at how it impacts them, we know as in any mental health challenges, if we don't take care of it ahead of time, it could exasperate the symptoms, right? They could be experiencing panic attacks because of the, like, for example, the the um, the scenario of the student who saw the military, right? You can see how if we don't treat that anxiety and break the memory to the response Whenever this person is going to see a military personnel, they will have this outburst of a reaction. So it could be that it could constantly be impacted with the triggers. And it's a very unpleasant feeling and, and sensation as we described, because it can be very disorienting. This could lead to physical illnesses, that constant release of adrenaline, like we said in our bodies, it could lead to a variety of other physical illnesses. And if we don't take care of that properly, these stress hormones in our body, like cortisol and adrenaline, it's a very negative thing that could hurt our hearts and other health issues. Now, anger, that's something that we didn't mention earlier when it came to PTSD and perhaps our, um, the generations here. I'm sure a lot of us, especially coming from Middle Eastern families, see anger quite a bit. Yeah. And I would say it's related, uh, not only, let's say, in a genetic manner. We always joke about, oh, that's the, the family temper, you know, that we've yeah, inherited. Yeah, I, yeah like the, uh, what's the word, intergenerational trauma, right? It's because of how they experience it could also come out through us, through perhaps, and we've seen this, parental discipline through the form of hitting, right? And in some cultures and part of the world, this is accepted in terms of child rearing. We know in most Western cultures, it's not. We know from an Islamic perspective, it is not. So, culture here is the root, right? And also people not having proper parenting techniques because of the trauma, because of the lack of education, the list can go on and on, right? But we know that anger these outbursts of anger can be quite detrimental long-term the relationships of the families, right? If that's not taken care of sooner, just like the health issues we mentioned, the other emotional outbursts or the lack of response, as we mentioned earlier on in the program, the withdrawal, how is this going to affect the relationships? I think it's pretty clear. 
there will be no relationships. There won't be healthy relationships. You will not be able to connect with each other, right? And it's so sad to see families like that. There's so much wisdom and love that we have in our grandparents and our elders and even our parents. We will miss out on that if we can't work through that trauma. And of course, it's going to be very hard. And I know it's hard to try and explain this to our elderly parents and grandparents who don't believe in mental health issues to begin with. Like, no, we don't talk. We just keep it quiet. But we know when keeping in these things, how it eats us up alive inside, right? So we have to approach it with the language, and we've spoken about this before, the language that they understand, the language of love, the language of compassion, the language our own faith teaches us in terms of how to connect with vulnerable people. Using the language of faith and spirituality and the prophets and the Ahl Bayt, that's how we can connect, I believe, with our elderly or with people of different ethnic backgrounds, different faiths. When you're using a language they understand and using constructs and schemas and thoughts and ideas they understand, that's how you can make the communication work and slowly open up to working through this, right? So, it's very delicate. It's very sensitive. Mm. And not everybody will be open to it, right? All we can do is show love. And, and, and you know what? For the younger people to read more about PTSD, to learn more about it, perhaps if they're not willing to label it as such, if we understand what it's about, then we can show that love and compassion and give them what they need. Not obviously treatment, medical, psychotherapeutic treatment, because I don't see many of them willing to go talk to somebody, but perhaps they're willing if once, you know, we open up the pathways through love this way, inshallah. 100%. Thank you very much again, Barak. My pleasure. Very inspiring. And the the little session we had just there was very good, (laughs) very unexpected. Alhamdulillah. Alhamdulillah. I I truly enjoy speaking about this. And as you can see, I'm always passionate about these topics because I believe there is a healing once we begin to understand how our body and our mind responds. And especially from a psycho-spiritual perspective, and especially as Muslims, we have that advantage, right? And, And I invite my brothers and sisters to go deeper and read more about this and not to just push it away and say, oh, it's a Western psychological thing. It is not. It is based, and if we go deeper into the hadith and treatments of worries, and if we look at, for example, the different du'as and the, from Sahifa Sajjadiyah, the whispered prayers, there's specific ones in there about emotions. Right. What does that tell you? That we had treatment through spirituality from 1400 years ago tackling these. We've had practitioners and universities and medical treatments and all of that back in the day but it was looked at quite differently back then than it and it's changed over time. Like Muslims were amongst the first practitioners. And I was reading about this and I was quite interested in learning about it too. So I didn't know this, right? Because living in the Western world, you don't learn about your Eastern culture that way. But when I came across it, I was like, wow, they were the original healers when it came to this. They use medicine, they use herbal medicine, they use spiritual treatments taken from the Quran, from the Prophet and the Ahl Bayt So we are the originators of this. We have this. If only people would dig deeper and read deeper and open up their hearts and minds, they'll be fascinated to seeing what I'm excited about all the time when it comes to mental health and treatment, inshallah. We should have a session on that as well, the history of mental health. I'll have to do my proper research on that or perhaps we'll get somebody else because that's still a lot to learn, inshallah. Definitely. Thank you very much again, Barak. A pleasure. A pleasure, inshallah. It's good talking with you. And anybody who is struggling, 
please don't hesitate to reach out. You can reach me through social media or the Muslim counselor uh, at gmail.com. I'd be more than happy to refer you because I don't do private practice to different resources online, as well as other practitioners that I could vouch for who do treatment for therapy for anxiety and all sorts of disorders, inshallah. Definitely. If anyone just needs to talk, you can reach out to LOF anytime. Stimulate Your Mind is proudly presented to you by LOF Productions. For more of our podcasts where we try to cover all the interesting topics happening all over the globe and also the personal stories of people right here in our own backyard. Subscribe to Stimulate Your Mind on Apple or Google Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you listen to your podcast. See you guys in a little while.